once again to the Global Gale podcast. My name is Philip O'Connor and you are listening to the weekly podcast for the Irish around the world. The small gathering of 70 odd million people of Irish heritage from Dublin to Darwin and beyond. I hope you're well. I did mention that it's a weekly podcast, but the avid listener will notice that there was no podcast last week, and that was due to a combination of illness and somebody who was uh, supposed to do an interview with me, and they just never showed up. And sometimes that will happen in this business, and rather than cause a bunch of confusion by saying, look, lads, there's no podcast this week, I just let it go. So my apologies if you're waiting on Saturday morning at 10 o'clock Central European time for this podcast usually drops and there was no episode there to greet you but uh, normal service is resumed and I'll tell you about this week's guest very shortly indeed. If this is the first time you're listening to this podcast right click the old subscribe button you're listening on something that's called the Arrow Man in Stockholm podcast feed and that's when I started podcasting that was the name that I gave to the feed and uh, you'll find that podcast here you'll also find the Irish in Sweden podcast which is obviously for the Irish people living in Sweden as the name says you'll find the premier swedes podcast which is about premier league players who played in sweden and i interviewed them on occasion and i throw up the old uh, podcast interviews when i get them there so it's all there and if you'd like to support the podcast patreon.com forward slash our man in stockholm and throw in a five or a month there and help me keep the lights on as I say, we do have ambitions for this podcast. When we get enough of supporters and we built the community to the extent where loads of people around the world are listening, well, then I'm hoping to do more and more and more stuff out there where Irish people are, be that in Philadelphia or in New York or in San Francisco or in Melbourne or in Sydney. I'm still talking to people about maybe doing some stuff around the Women's World Cup. Uh, the girls in green, of course, are taking part for the first time in Australia and are playing against Australia and against Canada and against Nigeria down there. So it'd be great to get down there. So as I say, discussions are ongoing. There will be more of that. And if this is, again, your first time listening, right, you'll see the logo. Every podcast that's put out, uh, the Global Gale logo pops up beside it, right? So that's how you can differentiate between the ones for the Irish community in Sweden and the global community, etc., etc., right? But go back and have a listen to the previous podcast as well, right? I'd love like to think boys and girls that they're fairly timeless uh, but there is we had a lad Paul on recently from Milwaukee in Wisconsin and he was talking about bringing groups of people over to travel to Ireland right uh, well worth listening to that I spoke to an academic earlier in the year about James Joyce and with Bloomsday coming up it might be interesting to go back and have a listen to that podcast if you're interested in that kind of thing so there's plenty of interviews there uh, some of them are with well-known Irish people some of them are with less well-known Irish people but I think uh, if Irish people and I mean when I start started this podcast I did say that there's no such thing as an ordinary Irish person abroad and I sincerely believe that and week in week out they keep proving me right and another fella who's proved me right this week is the man that you're going to hear from now and his name is Ruan McFadden right I met Ruan in Iceland, in Reykjavik, of all places, in 2019. Uh, the two of us train a sport called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, right? If you look at mixed martial arts or Conor McGregor, these lads, it, you'll know it's the, sort of the grappling part of that is based on what's called Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, right? And I met him at a camp, a training camp there that was going on for a week. And we just got to talking and I've known the chap ever since. And I've been following what he's doing because he's not just interested in the Brazilian aspect of uh, jiu-jitsu, of, of wrestling, of grappling. He's interested in all forms of folk wrestling. So didn't he go off and discover Ireland's traditional form of folk wrestling, which was called collar, Irish collar and elbow wrestling? 
And as you'll hear in the conversation, he started to dig into it. And eventually he ended up writing a book about it. And Ruan sort of travels the world now. I mean, he has a job like everybody else, right? But he takes career breaks and he goes off and he watches wrestling tournaments and he watches, you know, various uh, different sort of, or he goes, sorry, he visits various clubs and goes training with people and that kind of thing and learns various different things. And he also takes the opportunity to show them this Irish collar and elbow wrestling, right? A fascinating character, as I'm sure you'll agree when you've listened to him. And so where was he when I caught up with him? He was over in Tokyo, and the day after uh, watching a major sumo tournament, which is happening over there, and of course that's probably one of the best-known uh, folk wrestling styles around is Japan and all that kind of thing. So I caught up with him. It was early morning here in Europe where I'm based. It was in the late afternoon, early evening, uh, where he was based, and so we had a little bit of a chat. So here is Ruan McFadden to tell you all about Irish collar and elbow wrestling and why it's so important in Irish sporting and cultural heritage and history. Here we go. I suppose the most exciting way to kick this off, Ruan, would be to ask, where are you in the world right now and what were you doing yesterday? Okay, so uh, right now I am in the middle of Tokyo in my hotel room, very fancy. You know, we were just discussing beforehand, like, Fancy by Tokyo standards is basically I'm able to stand upright, <laughs> which has not always been the case in some of the little places I've been. So very fancy, very luxurious, you know, able to achieve full verticality, which is always nice. Uh, this morning, I just went for a little wander around a few of the, the different kind of contrasting parts of Tokyo, a very nice green forested area where one of the 19th century emperors is enshrined and then straight over to where all the strip clubs are because you know contrast keeps things interesting but uh, yesterday since you specifically asked about that i was at the sumo tournament so there's a uh, like the, the the sumo calendar now again i i am not a sumo expert you know but we, we will obviously i think get into talking about wrestling and traditional wrestling styles i'm not a sumo expert at all so when I was there yesterday, you know, I had my phone in my hand and I was Googling every 30 seconds, like, what, what is happening? Like, what, what, what is this guy saying? What does this hand gesture mean? So I'm not an expert. So if anyone out there is a sumo fan, you know, feel free to write an angry comment saying, it's like, oh, no, that's fucking wrong. You messed that up. But the way I understand it is the sumo calendar, like the big fixtures on the annual calendar, there's, I don't know, four, between four and six big tournaments in different cities in Japan. So you have one in Osaka, you have one in Nagoya, and currently you have one in Tokyo. And it runs for over a week, maybe even close to two weeks, and it's a round-robin system. So it's not like elimination where the first day, you know, everyone is there, and then by the end of the tournament, you know, it's dwindled down to two or three. It's round-robin system. So you have your senior division, like the 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 top quality, the highest ranked guys. You have the, the, I think they call it the junior division. Like I have the info sheet here somewhere, but basically the slightly lower ranked guys. And then right below that, you have the young up and comers. So you basically have three different divisions with maybe 16 to 20 matches in each one. And it's a round robin system. So, you know, day one, this guy fights this guy. Day two, he fights another guy. And they basically just work their way through the roster like this. So I went to day two yesterday um i i don't know if there's a recommended date to go on like it, again it's it's round robin so you're going to see the same number of fights every time i just wanted to go early because i figured you know the guys would be fresh 
um, why not? Why not? But again, a, a sumo aficionado might be like, no, no, no. You know, the real action is on day seven, day eight, or whatever. So again, there's a lot of stuff happening there that, as a, a Westerner and as a non-sumo aficionado, it's probably gone a lot over my head. Mm. But it's a phenomenally interesting experience. So if anyone is any way interested in wrestling or Japanese culture, if you're in Japan, if it happens to coincide with a sumo tournament, I would say go for it. You know, it's a once in a lifetime experience. What's the atmosphere at those things like, Ruan? Is it like the WWE where it's beer and popcorn and people shouting and that kind of thing? Or is it, you know, we so, might expect them to be very respectful? You know? No, so that's, that's what I was expecting. Because like, I don't know if you remember the old uh, Japanese MMA days, you know, pride MMA, we're talking, you know, like the early 2000s. The crowds at those events, you know, this was MMA, this was full-on UFC-style MMA, like in many ways more violent than UFC because, you know, they were allowing soccer kicks and so on. So very visceral, very brutal happenings in the ring. The Japanese crowds would be silent, like silent apart from maybe when one exciting thing would happen then there'd be a, a a spike of cheers and then they'd go right back to just respectfully observing so that's what i was expecting at a sumo tournament because i mean it's a japanese crowd obviously but it's even more traditional you know in in if you had a scale of combat sports you know mma is at one end of the scale and sumo would be like very much at the other end you know very respectful very traditional no, you know, Conor McGregor style swagger and bullshit, like nothing like that. It's very much, you know, sportsmanship and a lot of ritual, a lot of religious style ritual involved. So I was expecting the crowds to be very, very restrained. And they are to an extent, you know, they're not there getting boozed up. They're not booing, like there's no booing at all. But they get very hyped for their favorite guys. So even... uh like let's say for, b before the bouts themselves even start for the for each division there's a ring entrance um not seminar ceremony where the wrestlers from the east side and the west side come out so east and west is basically how they divide them the the matches you know in in western combat sports like boxing it's usually red corner and blue corner in sumo it's west and east so they'll bring out the western guys and they'll announce them, you know, in Japanese. Obviously, this is, uh, you know, Tochin Ocean. He's from Georgia. He's fighting out of this stable. Crowd all cheers. You know, all his uh, his fans, you know, they'll be screaming his name. They'll be waving banners. He goes in. And then repeat that, you know, 12 times or so for each wrestler. They all get applause. They all get, you know, people up on their feet calling for their favorite guy, especially the hometown heroes. And then they do that for the Eastern guys. So you'll have, you know, maybe 24 wrestlers. They'll get their individual announcement. And then at least yesterday, because there was a Yokozuna fighting, like Yokozuna obviously being the highest ranked guy, who at the moment, like generally, again, if I understand correctly, there's usually only one Yokozuna at any point in sumo. Not always. There can be more than one. But the, the recent other Yokozuna, like the guy who's, commonly regarded as the absolute best sumo wrestler not just of the modern era but of all time a guy called Hakuho Sho who's Mongolian he recently retired which left just one Yokozuna called Terano Fuji he was there yesterday when a Yokozuna is present after them, the individual wrestlers get their intros 
the Yokozuna comes out and does uh, like a, a ring blessing ceremony almost because he's the highest ranking guy. You know, he'll come out, he'll have this big 20 kilo white rope wrapped around his torso. And then he does this very ritualized series of movements with the outstretched arms. And then he'll do the, you know, the classic sumo thing where he'll raise his foot and slam it down on the, the ring. And that's to banish, banish. It, originally it was to banish uh, demons, like banish bad spirits. It's also just for good luck, you know, kind of getting the ring ready for the competition that's that's ready to unfold. And the crowd gets so into that, you know, like when he raises his foot and he slams it down on the crowd, like the crowd all in unison cheers, you know, when the foot hits the ground. And they'll be calling out his name as he walks to the ring. So it's they very much get into it. You know, it's not like being in church, but it's it's a positive energy. You know, you you never ever boo the guy you don't like. You cheer for the guy that you do like. Hmm. So you'll be calling out his name. You'll be hyping him up. But you never boo when the other guy walks in. Like I think that's very much frowned upon. So. Basically, yes, the crowd, you are allowed to enjoy it, you're allowed to get into it, but it's definitely not a full-on boozed-up MMA crowd because then, you know, like the booze, depending on where that crowd is and depending on who's fighting, there can be more booze than cheers half the time, and that's that's not sumo at all. Yeah. How did an Irishman wind up in the middle of all this in Tokyo yesterday? Where does your interest in, in this kind of wrestling and folk wrestling and traditional wrestling in general, where does that come from, Ruan? Oh, right. So, um, okay, I've been doing different types of combat sports for, I suppose, about half my life. I mean, I'm actually <laughs> older than I thought. Of it. I'm 38 <laughs> now, so, so yeah, definitely more than half my life. I started out with amateur boxing. This is back in college in Galway. Uh, from there, you know, this was 2004, 2005, when MMA was starting to become a bit more well-known, you know, at least at, at least for me, like, you know, West of Ireland, I'm sure it had been well-known elsewhere for, for a while. So I dabbled in a little bit of BJJ then. I was Googling Irish MMA. I found a local grappling club. I tried out some BJJ in 2004. So, so for those um, who haven't heard of it, BJJ is Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which is basically like uh, it's wrestling in pajamas. And it comes originally from judo, went to Brazil. They sort of repackaged it uh, into this grappling sport. And it was kind of the foundation stone of MMA, wasn't it? The Gracie family wanted to, yeah. to export this. You know, and now it's huge. There's clubs everywhere. Yeah, exactly. So like, the, the Gracie's... Um, you know, UFC one was basically an advertising campaign for them. You know, they they wanted to promote uh, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu in the US, so they put together a tournament. They submitted their representative, who was Voice Gracie. He won, so the advertising campaign worked. So yeah, BJJ, Jiu Jitsu, grappling. So you know, you mentioned wrestling in pajamas. I do it more without the pajamas, which doesn't mean you do it naked. Just in case anyone was wondering, it just means you use you know, it's like uh, rash guard, skin tight. Um, Skin tight, compression shirt, shorts, and so on. Anyway, I did maybe three BJJ classes in 2004, and I hated it. I thought, like, this is the weirdest thing I've ever seen, you know, especially coming from a boxing background where your conception of combat sports is very much you stand up and you punch each other in the head. Uh, Ireland, at least modern Ireland, doesn't have a wrestling 
culture at all. You know, growing up, I grew up in Sligo. You never heard about wrestling whatsoever. You know, you there might have been a judo class here and there, but that was basically the only form of grappling that I think existed in the West of Ireland when I was growing up. So this notion of, you know, grabbing each other and pulling each other to the ground and then fighting on the ground, you know, that's that's just like sloppy schoolyard stuff. So coming from my boxing background, I was like, no, this is too weird. Like, yeah, it's not for me. So I quit after like three classes. And then it took me about seven or eight years to come back and then realize, oh, there's actually something to this. So that was I think, 2010, 2011. I started training jiu-jitsu a little bit more seriously. Then I moved to Germany, which is where I still live. And then I got really hooked. So I've been doing jiu-jitsu for about a decade. And then from there, just started branching out into other adjacent styles. So things like judo, uh, you know, wrestling in the Olympic sense, like freestyle wrestling. And at some point, just my interests, I realized I had a lot of interests that overlapped. You know, I liked grappling. I like history. I like learning about different cultures. I like traveling. You know, I like learning about different languages and, you know, the anthropology of various different cultural traditions. And that all coalesced at some point, maybe five, six years ago, into me making a, like a very amateurish, I should emphasize, because I'm not a graphic designer, a very amateurish map, just pointing out some of the few dozen different traditional wrestling styles that have been practiced across the world. Because a lot of people seem to think grappling, it's, oh yeah, there's, there's jiu-jitsu, there's judo, and there's Olympic wrestling. That's basically it. So I wanted to point out, it's like, no, listen, wrestling is something that has been around for as long as human beings have been human beings, probably even beforehand. You know, there was probably two monkeys grabbing each other and laying each other to the ground at some point. So I just wanted to point out, it's like, no, listen, there's actually a really big grappling wrestling world out there far beyond these modern styles that coalesced in the 20th century. And there's often a lot of tradition attached to them, you know, like like the sumo things that we just talked about. There's a lot of ritual because, you know, wrestling has almost always, no matter where you look at it, it's been considered a very uh, respectable, um, noble, kind of valorous tradition, you know. Uh, it, there was a lot of social prestige in being a good wrestler, you know, and being the strongest man in town. Uh, you'll see that a lot like in Ireland if you read through the old folklore archives, you know, if you go to... Um, like the schools collection, all those folklore collections that are online, uh, dukas.ie, there was a huge amount of social prestige in Ireland about being a strong guy. You know, yeah, all the yarns about like, oh, he could, you know, pick up a donkey at the age of four. You know, he could swim a mile while smoking a pipe. You know, he could pole vault over the church and all of this stuff, like all exaggerations, obviously, but, you know, there was a lot of prestige for you, for your family, for your village and being, you know, a strong guy, you know, Ireland had a, a very um, kind of well-established tradition of like, stone lifting, you know, heavy, heavy stone lifting, like they did in Scotland as well with the Dini stones. So you see that everywhere. You know, wrestling had a lot of ritual and prestige attached to it. So I just, at some point then, went down the rabbit hole and I started the, the podcast that I've been running for the past maybe five years or so called the hero with a thousand holes 
which you know is blatantly stolen from Joseph Campbell's book, The Hero of a Thousand Faces, where I just travel around the world, like not not literally, I should add, you know, I don't literally travel to every single location. Most of them I have, but not all. So figuratively travel around the world and just pick a location, pick a wrestling tradition, and just really deep dive in and examine, like not just the rules, because I mean, the rules are always pretty similar, like grab the guy, throw him to the ground. But just who are these people? You know, who are the Georgians? Why do they wrestle in this particular type of jacket? You know, what is this type of musical instrument that they play in the background for every wrestling match? You know, what's the link between that musical instrument and their wrestling tradition? What's this poem that they told about these two wrestlers in the 17th century? You know, how does it all tie together to give an image of them as a people and the ways in which their history and their struggles and so on has kind of given their wrestling a flavor and that, that's an endless rabbit hole you know like i've i've been working on that podcast for five years or so i don't have the most uh, prodigious output rate because there's just so much reading involved and translating you know trying to find someone who can translate 17th century georgian for me or medieval icelandic so there's just a lot of time involved uh, so I'm, I'm probably down now to maybe one episode a year, one or two episodes a year, but I'd rather take the time and get out something good rather than just, you know, getting random snippets out to feed the content algorithm every week or so. So, yeah, that, that's a very long story, uh, very long story, not so much short, slightly shortened is how I ended up at a sumo basho in Tokyo. One of the parts of the rabbit hole, and I have to say, so I think we first met in like 2019 in Iceland or somewhere like that at uh, BJJ Globetrotters Camp, which is where hundreds of people come together, great black belts, you learn your thing, you do your thing for the week. And we started talking about this and you were talking to me about Irish collar and elbow wrestling, which in fairness to you, I had never heard of up until that point, right? How did you discover this and what is it? Right, so I discovered this or maybe redis rediscovered it when I put that map together again, maybe five, six years ago. So I was just doing some very superficial, you know, surface level Googling to try and get an overview of what styles existed in what countries. Do they still exist, etc.? And I came across this mention of collar and elbow for Ireland. And I say I rediscovered it because. Like, as soon as I came across that, I was like, wait a minute, I've, I've heard about that before. You know, I probably just touched on it at some point by accident, you know, a few years previously again. So I was like, yeah, wait, I, I have heard that term before, but I never really bothered looking into it up until then. So I put this map together with collar and elbow on it, marked as extinct, you know, a big cross beside it. And then at some point I said, listen, you know, I, I'm going to put this map together. I'm going to get it out there. If someone turns to me and they say, hey, listen, I, I saw that map you put together. Uh, you're Irish. Tell me a little bit about your traditional style. Like, how did it look? How did it work? And I realize like, I don't have a clue. Like, I really don't have a clue beyond the name. I said, no, that's, that, that can't be. Like, I, I have to have some kind of backup here in case people ask me. So that was a whole other rabbit hole that I went down. Because at that particular point, there really wasn't much info about it online. 
And, you know, as you said, you hadn't heard of it. Like, I hadn't heard of it. No one had heard of it. You know, I was asking, you know, my father, for instance, who grew up in a Gaeltic area, so, you know, was always kind of in touch with more traditional Irish culture, you know, grew up speaking Irish as his first language, was involved in sport his entire life, never heard of it. He asked some of his friends of the same age, you know, people he went and he studied um, physical education in college for a few years. So, you know, he had contacts in the Irish sporting world. No one had heard of it. So the the living memory of it had died entirely. There was no hidden hedge schools out there. You know, there was no masters up in the mountains, like off in the burren, you know, punching a tree or whatever, just waiting for the right moment to come in and share their knowledge. Like it, it was gone. It was gone, gone. And there really wasn't much info about it online. So it was a, a difficult enough rabbit hole to try and find your way down. But bit by bit, you know, me and a like few few other guys as well, like I did not just do this single-handedly. Like there's a friend of mine, Stephen Curtin, for instance, like he pulled up so much old stuff from newspaper archives and so on. So once I lit a little bit of a spark and people realized, oh, we, we had a wrestling tradition in Ireland as well. Like maybe I'll go and have a look in this archive and I might find something and then stuff kind of trickles in from other from other corners so it's a communal effort but basically collar and elbow before i um go into how it looked i should specify that wrestling in ireland looked many different ways from village to village and region to region because you know that that's how sport works in the pre-modern period before you have rule books and the organizations like the GAA, for instance. And just even to use the GAA as an example, you know, when, when they started codifying the rules of Gaelic football and hurling in the late 19th century, you know, that was exactly one of the things they had to deal with is that there was no such thing as hurling and football. There was hurlings and footballs. You know, hurling was done this way in this county. It was done this way in this county. This village, you know, did the following way. So they had to smooth things out and they're like, okay, no, we were all going to do this the same way. Here's your rule book. And wrestling was, of course, the same, you know, like in the 19th century, like stretching way back into prehistory, everyone wrestled differently. So when you're reading accounts of wrestling, you know, going way back into, you know, mythology and, you know, stories of leadership clashes between particular clans up in Donegal, you know, they would have had their way of doing it. And a mile down the road, this other family would have had their other way of doing it. So there wasn't, there was no such thing as Irish wrestling. There was Irish wrestlings, different ways. But collar and elbow was the method of wrestling that rose to the top in the 19th century. It was the, the framework for wrestling that became the most popular in the country and then that we took with us abroad because the 19th century is when you had all those huge waves of Irish immigration, you know, due to mainly things like the famine. So collar and elbow was the method of Irish wrestling that we brought abroad. Just like, you know, in Japan, you have jujitsu, you have sumo, you have judo, different forms of Japanese grappling. We had different forms of Irish grappling, Irish wrestling. So just focusing on collar and elbow. Collar and elbow was a form of jacket wrestling, meaning you wore a jacket, you know, a sturdy piece of clothing, and you took a fixed 
hold on that jacket. So for anyone who's listening, you know, when you when you think wrestling nowadays, you'd probably visualize freestyle wrestling, you know, Olympic style wrestling, where you have two guys in singlets and they're free to grab wherever they want. You know, you can grab the head, you can grab the back of the neck, you can grab the wrist, you can grab tricep, you can grab leg, whatever. Collar and elbow was not like that. You were allowed to grab one place precisely. And that was, as the name suggests, one hand on the collar, usually the right hand, not always. There are some accounts of it being the left, but usually the right hand went to the collar of the jacket. And then the left hand went to the elbow of the jacket, like at the tricep. So again, sometimes it was vice versa. It was left hand on collar, right hand on elbow, but vast majority of counts, it's right on collar, left on elbow. So with your hands in place, you had to work primarily with your legs. So it was a game of trips and hooks and blocks with the lower body. You could, of course, use your, your upper body grips to move the guy around, but you had to stand upright. You had to stay light on your feet and you had to attack with the lower body. So that's where this famous description of collar and elbow came from a fist fight with the feet because multiple observers remarked that this is just like a boxing match with the legs you know just like a boxer has their hands up and is fainting with the shoulders fainting with the jab throwing combinations like left right hook uppercut that was how collar and elbow wrestlers fought they're constantly moving their feet like tapping on the shins you know testing the guy's balance like pulling him with their grips off balance him and then hooking in his leg and bringing him down. So it was all a game of trips and blocks. And then you met, you won by either making the guy touch the ground with his back. Again, it depends on region to region. You know, in the US, it was more, you had to make him um, hit the ground flat on his back. In parts of Ireland, it was literally anywhere above the feet. So even if he touched his knee down, that counted as a win. But like, like I said, you know, every village, every town, every county had their own method of doing it. Um, so that's one way you could win, make him hit the ground. But also if he broke his grip, either voluntarily or otherwise, that counted as a fall too. And then it was best of three falls to win. So either you make him hit the ground twice or you make him hit the ground once, you make him break his grip once, you make him break his grip twice, however you do it, but best of two, uh, sorry, best two of three falls to win that was collar and elbow and that's what we brought with us to the us to canada to australia to new zealand there are accounts of collar and elbow matches taking place in very random places where irishmen brought it with the british army so places like malta uh, india uh, i think there was even one in china if i remember correctly and at one point in the U.S. in particular, it was one of the most popular ways of wrestling. There was Greco-Roman, which is, of course, now an Olympic style. There was catch-as-catch-can wrestling, and there was collar and elbow. That was the holy trinity of wrestling in the U.S. for a significant portion of the 19th century. It was described as the Irish style, the Irish method of wrestling, had an extremely positive reputation for being highly technical and highly scientific and then it just declined and died 
Why is that? Why, why did it fall in a favour if it was that popular and technical? And it's the kind of thing that when you describe it there, I'm sure think people are thinking, Jesus, I'd love to see that done at a high level. So why did it fall away when Greco-Roman and freestyle and, and jiu-jitsu and all these things kept going? So I, I think precisely because it was seen as very technical and scientific actually came back to, to bite it a bit. In the same way that let's say in the past 20 to 30 years, combat sports like boxing have lost out a bit in favor of MMA. You know, boxing is often regarded as, you know, the manly art of self-defense, you know, the sweet science, you know, the scientific, respectable way of fighting. You know, you put your hands up and you fight like a gentleman. MMA has a reputation, you know, at least among some people, has been a little bit, you know, more brutal, a bit grittier, less respectable, but also more exciting. And you see the same kind of interplay between some of these wrestling styles more in the later part of the 19th century, moving into the 20th century. Things like catch-as-catch-can wrestling, which was much, much actually fairly similar to modern no-gi jiu-jitsu, you know, as in not with the not with the pajamas on. You could grab wherever you wanted, you'd fling the guy to the ground, and then you'd work for your pins and your submission holes. So much more brutal. Didn't have a great reputation among, you know, the, the more respectable parts of society because, you know, again, all this rolling around on the ground, you know, getting sweaty, cranking on limbs until the guy, you know, suffered enough to give up. It's not the kind of thing you would bring your wife to, you know, in the late 19th century, whereas there is at least one ad in a newspaper, 19th century ad, for a collar and elbow event that specifically said this is suitable for ladies to attend because there's no blood, you know, there's no grime and grit and pain. It's just a gentlemanly scientific exchange of trips. So you can bring your wife and you don't have to worry that she's going to, you know, faint and need a glass of brandy in order to revive. So that was collar and elbows positive reputation, but it also, I think, came to harm it a bit as as people started veering more, like especially, you know, the working class crowds started veering more towards things like catch wrestling and Greco-Roman because they were seen as being a bit more brutal and a bit more exciting. So that led to numbers and interests in collar and elbow declining. And then I think a real fatal blow for it is that there was never any organization to stand up and promote it like the GAA did for um, other Irish sports like hurling and Gaelic football. Now, the, the funny thing is when you look at the very first GAA rulebook, I can't remember the exact year, but this is again 18, I want to say the 1880s, you can already see that they're not interested in wrestling. You know, they they acknowledge that wrestling has a long tradition as an Irish grassroots rural sport. But when you look at that first rule book and you contrast the emphasis that they put on promoting and presenting the rules for Gaelic football and hurling versus wrestling you can already see where this is going because you know they had 20 pages of rules on hurling and football and then wrestling was like half a page 
just like oh if you want you know if anyone happens to want to do this like yeah, here i guess is how you can do it so that lack of interest was there right from the beginning that was in the first rule book and then after that it just disappeared like they right from the beginning had no interest in promoting wrestling for whatever reason maybe it was seen as a little bit too I know, unsophisticated, a little bit too, yeah, I don't know, too too grassroots, too brutal. It's not something that they wanted to throw their their effort and their money behind. So the GAA have never helped promote Irish wrestling, whereas they did throw all their weight behind football and hurling. And you see the difference. Like there was some districts of Ireland in which you know hurling and Gaelic football had essentially died out near the end of the 19th century. But a hundred years later of, you know, organized, concentrated promotional efforts, every little village in Ireland has a, a GAA club. You know, the, the All-Ireland Final, 80,000 people sold out crowd in Croke Park every year. So you do have to wonder, like, if they had thrown even some of that effort behind the national Irish style, you know, the style of wrestling that had traveled abroad and was known as the Irish style. No one else was trying to claim it. You know, it was very much our style that was, um, you know, um, doing very well overseas and at home. If they had thrown a little bit of effort behind it, where would it be today? But without any kind of promotional effort, you know, once once the decline started, it was really precipitous. And over the course of maybe even a 10 or 15 years, you move from collar and elbow matches taking place every Sunday in the hollow in Phoenix Park, you know, huge events where wrestlers would travel from neighboring counties and actually all over the country to compete in collar and elbow to 10 years later where people have barely even heard of it. It was just precipitous decline and no one was there to help kind of pick up the pieces. So, you know, the end result, a hundred years later, no one has heard of it. It just disappeared from memory entirely until we started shining a little bit of a light on it again. If the GAA is basically the Gaelic Athletic Association, it's tasked with preserving our sporting culture, Gaelic football, hurling, handball, rounders. These are variations often of sports that are on a global stage, but this is the Irish take on them. Is this an open goal for them, Ruan? Because if they were to adopt this again, we've seen the rise of things like bare knuckle boxing in the States is now, you know, professional sport. Uh, the idiotic sport of slap fighting, which is the one combat sport I absolutely cannot abide by. Um, but there, there seems to me to be an opportunity there now and if you pair that with the fact that Grail Scullina have, be, have become such a big thing that this almost a, a 21st century Gaelic revival is happening there's a lot of Irish people like yourself and myself who've been involved in grappling and jiu-jitsu and that kind of thing do you see a future for it again all of a sudden if we were to sort of bring it into the GAA or to set up an organization to promote it again could you see it growing in popularity again no I mean listen I'll, <laughs> no, I'll, I'll, I'll be I'll, I'll be very honest. Like, it's it's never going to come back to the levels that it was in the 19th century. There's just too much competition there at the moment, you know, from things like, you know, MMA and BJJ. So we're never going to have collar and elbow as the number one grappling sport in the country again. But I do think there is um, an opening there to have small grassroots level matches and competitions because that's exactly what you see elsewhere in the world 
you know, even not that far from home, if you go across to Brittany in France, they have a traditional wrestling style called Bure. Judo is huge in France. You know, judo is there. Nothing is going to dethrone judo from the French sporting scene. But they're not trying to, nor should they, because that is an endeavor that is doomed to failure. Like if you come in and say, I'm going to make Gurin the number one sport in the country, you know, just like if I was to come in and say, I'm going to make collar and elbow the number one sport in the country, never going to happen. But what they have in Brittany is actually quite a strong grassroots traditional wrestling scene, you know, often in combination with larger um, Celtic cultural festivals, you know, music, food, drink, and you'll have a Guren competition there because it's as much a part of the heritage as any of the other things. Um, there is quite a strong uh, international scene, as in the guys from Brittany will travel to Scotland. Scotland has backhole wrestling that they do at the Highland Games. So maybe uh, a team will go from Brittany up to Scotland and compete in backhold. Then the backhold guys will come down to Brittany and compete in Gouren. Even um, to Iceland, you know, when, when I met you in 2019, the whole reason I went to that um, Globetrotters camp is because at the end of every Globetrotters camp in Iceland, we have the Glima matches, Glima being traditional Icelandic wrestling. Sometimes the Glima guys will come down and compete in backhold. Sometimes two teams from Brittany, Scotland, from other places in Europe will go up to Iceland. So there is a little grassroots international scene there with no intentions of trying to dethrone these other sports, but just recognizing that we have our own and we can indulge in them and compete in them and the other things as well. So by all means, you can go and do judo, go do BJJ, go do freestyle wrestling. But by the way, we have our own one as well. And I would love if we could get a little grassroots scene like that going in Ireland. I think the GAA is basically a lost cause. Like, without getting too political, I have no idea who's listening. I think the GAA is a lost cause. I think right from the beginning, they have established their lack of interest in wrestling. And I'm in contact with uh, some people from the Gurren scene in Brittany, one of whom... Um, who has been involved in it for decades, a gentleman called Guy Jean. He wrote them before to my book. He traveled over to Ireland in, I think, the 80s with a group of Goran guys and approached the GAA to see him. Would you be interested in us just giving little demonstrations you know, at halftime in between matches? You know, you don't have to pay us or anything. Like Just a little bit of, you know, cultural exchange, you know, Celtic cultural exchange. And they were met with, you know, what he would call polite disinterest. It was like, no one cares. No, no one cares about these like weird guys like rolling around on the ground. So I don't think there's a market there for the GA. And I, I'm actually perfectly happy with that because I'm if I just think that the politics would probably kill it before it gets off the ground. So in terms of promoting it, like I, I, I hate politics. I hate, you know, you, you've you've probably encountered it in jujitsu as well. You know, people setting themselves up as the lord and master on the mountain. You know, I am the guru. You have to pay me for affiliation. You know, everything has to come through me, or else it's not real. I hate that. 
like I would I would really love for color and elbow to become you know a kind of a multi-headed hydra in in the positive sense. So I do everything for free. Like okay, the book is an exception because you know I have to sell a book, but everything else I put online for free. So all the technique reconstructions they're on YouTube. The rule book is online for free. Like this is a rule book that myself and some other people have compiled based on accounts of historic matches you know we put our heads together and said look you know we've studied you know a hundred matches on multiple different continents we've compiled things from different rule books this is a suggested modern competition rule set for collar and elbow and when i say modern you know you have to introduce some things like time limits to make it work in a modern tournament context because you know no one wants to hang around while these guys wrestle for three hours and, you know, someone else is still warming up in the background, you know, th things like that. Like, okay, let, let's do it for five minutes. You know, obviously 19th century, they weren't that particular. They were just like wrestle until the guy loses, but you have to tweak certain things to make it more compatible with the 21st century. But that's, a, that's online for free. So if anyone wants to like, not, not even hold a competition, but if you have a friend that you would like to try some collar and elbow with like literally all you need is a sturdy jacket or one that you don't mind getting maybe a little bit scuffed the rule set is online there's quite a few techniques online that we've reconstructed just you can go and play around with this you know you, you absolutely do not need my permission put on put on a competition because it doesn't belong to me i didn't invent this you know i'm not claiming that i am the, the representative of a long-lost lineage of collar and elbow wrestlers that's been hiding you know in the mountains in Donegal and so like the Irish else. Jedi kind of thing you know yeah exactly I'm just like no I've I, I I've reconstructed this along with some other people go and play with it you know it belongs to all of us so I would I would like to just light a few little fires around the place like that and you know the, the whole like the, the GAA route it's it's not for me anyway I just First of all, I don't want to have to deal with that level of politics. And second of all, I just think they've made their absolute lack of interest clear multiple times across multiple decades. Um, you mentioned your book there. What's your book called and where can people get hold of it? Okay, so the, the book, it's a, it's a very straightforward title. It's literally just called Irish Color and Elbow Wrestling. No, I was thinking, oh, will I give it one of these clever subtitles? No, I'll just get to the point. So it's called Irish Color and Elbow Wrestling. Uh, it's, um, I published it via a publishing house in Scotland that specializes in historical European martial traditions, so, you know, things like Highland Broadsword and... Uh, you know, medieval rapier manuals and so on. So you can get it directly from that publishing house, which is Fallen Rook, Rook or OK, like the chess piece. Depending on where you're located, you can also get it via some other distributors as well. So Fallen Rook are based in Scotland. There is uh, one in for EU buyers, it's possibly easier to get it via the French distributor, which is called Black Armory. And then for anyone in North America, uh, it is Purple Heart Armory. So those would be the three main places to get it from. Um, 
what do you see as a future for Irish collar and elbow wrestling? I know you don't want to go down the political route and that kind of thing, but the thought struck me there when you were talking about it. There's so many festivals, uh, Irish festivals and Celtic festivals that happen in North America, for instance. Wouldn't it be great to see a situation where Irish collar, collar and elbow wrestling was taken by the locals and say, okay, this is what we perceive it to be. Let's go. Let's have a tournament. Because they also have a tradition of collegiate, Greco-Roman, freestyle wrestling there as well. Is that what you see as this sort of organic future for collar and elbow wrestling? Or do you even care now just because you, you've taken it, you've rediscovered it and sort of presented it to the world? Are you still invested in what happens next? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I definitely care because I would hate to see it just, you know, disappear again in five to ten years. And then someone else has to go through this whole process again in, you know, five decades or so. So I would love to keep a little bit of momentum going. You know, I don't want to set myself up as, you know, the guru that everyone has to, you know, fly over first class and put up in a hotel to run collar and elbow tournaments. So I would absolutely like for other people to just take the baton and do some stuff in their hometowns as well. And I think that is an excellent forum that you mentioned there. You know, North America has a huge wrestling tradition. There's a significant amount of people of Irish ancestry. So I think the interest is there. There's actually a friend of mine in Chicago, Tom Higgins, who routinely puts on little bouts uh, in his gym there. So far, just aimed at existing grapplers, you know, judo guys, MMA guys, BJJ guys. But I do think there is potentially a market for fresh people as well, you know, people who have no experience in grappling, but just might like to dabble in an aspect of their Irish heritage at some music festival. I think there's a big one in Milwaukee off the top of my head. You know, if someone had a little booth there with some jackets, and the rule book said, hey, listen, no, you, you look strong. Do you want to come here, wrestle your friend? Mm. Just just wrestle your friend. I'm, I'm going to tell you how collar and elbow worked. You know, I'll take pictures of you for Instagram. You know, just stuff like that. Just people can indulge in an aspect of their heritage without needing to become a professional collar and elbow wrestler. There are so many little ways in which it can be expressed. And yeah, I'm, I'm just happy that people are talking about it now. And, you know, I've gotten emails from some very surprising places like Brazil and Japan, you know, people either with Irish ancestry or are just interested in traditional wrestling styles saying, look, thank you for bringing my attention to this. You know, I told all my students about it. So I think that there are little sparks out there. And I do want to be conscious of not letting those sparks die out, you know, like I want to just blow a little bit on them here and there and see if I can get get a bit of an inferno going. Uh, but yeah, I, I don't have a plan. I don't have a five-year plan, you know, where I can say, oh, I want Colour and Elbow to be, you know, at the Olympics in this year or whatever. Like, I'm just happy that it's out there again and hopefully we can get a bit of organic growth going. Uh, you're currently on something of an Asian tour at the moment. Uh, when is that going to finish up? Has that all been about going and seeing different styles of folk wrestling around Asia? And when are you coming back to Germany and uh, teaching collar and elbow and various other things again? Right. So then I, I'm actually, I'm very fortunate. I have a six month sabbatical from work at the moment, which began on April 1st. So uh, I was off in Asia for almost six weeks. 
that particular part of the tour is almost at an end. So I'm going to be flying back to Germany in four days. Uh, it wasn't all focused on traditional wrestling styles. I just like traveling in general. You know, I like history. I like museums. I like culture. I like architecture. So I try and just soak up as much as possible. But luckily enough, I did get a chance to indulge in traditional wrestling in both South Korea, where I was previously, and Sumo, where I am now. So Sumo was just as a spectator. Uh, in Korea, I actually did get to train some uh, shirim, which is the traditional Korean style. Amazing experience. Like, amazing experience. And so welcoming, too. Because, you know, as a foreigner, you go in there, like, they are so happy that someone is interested in this traditional aspect of their culture. They just, you know, welcome you with open arms, like, hey, let me show you how this works. You know, bring out for food and drinks afterwards. Amazing experience. So even though it wasn't really intended to be a traditional wrestling tour, I did happen to check those those boxes along the way. Back to Germany in four days. Um, next step is Mongolia, where I will be going at the end of June for three weeks. Again, mix of things, do some hiking, just absorb some culture. I will see if I can get any traditional wrestling done there. Of course, Mongolia has a huge tradition to be there when the big uh, annual Nadam festival is on, where they compete in what they call the three manly sports, horseback riding, archery and wrestling. So I'll definitely be able to observe some. I might even be able to do some because one of the gyms I trained with in Korea, they have um, an exchange program basically going on with a, a gym in Ulaanbaatar. So they said, yeah, listen, you know, just remind me when you're going and i'll give you this guy's contact details so i might get a chance to do that and then speaking of ireland and irish culture i'm going to be in ireland for the whole month of august up at Igisgale in donegal uh, refreshing my irish because my irish has declined to a frankly shameful level it, it was never amazing and then i've been living abroad for 12 years so i'm going to be up there for for a month and I'm actually thinking about dropping them a line and saying, look, you know, you you because they also do cultural courses, you know, they do things like basket weaving, I think, and embroidery and so on. But look, would you have any interest in you know a wrestling a demonstration even? You know, you, you don't you don't have to throw any of your students into the ring and get them injured, you know, on the the accompanying insurance nightmare, but look, would you be interested in a demo or just a little presentation? on collar and elbow and the worst they can say is no if they happen to say no i'm sure there's some bjj schools or judo schools nearby that i could possibly have a little you know weekend weekend seminar we'll see well it, whatever you're doing wherever you're doing it in the world you're always welcome to come back on this podcast and to let us know if there's a tournament taking place if you're making a presentation anywhere in the world i have to say i found it endlessly fascinating since you introduced me to the concept four years ago and uh, if we do meet up in person at any time in the near future i'll bring a jacket and maybe you can throw me around a little bit but for now Ro mcfadden thanks so much for talking to me no problem thanks for having me on
There you go. That was Ruan McFadden there joining me from Tokyo. And as this episode was dropping, I think I worked it out, he's going to be on a flight back from uh, Tokyo to Germany where he lives uh, after a good long spell spent travelling the highways and byways over there in Asia. Fascinating guy altogether. I don't think we ever spoke about what his regular job is or anything else like that. And maybe that will be... Uh, the subject of another episode of the Global Gale podcast. That is everything I have for you this week. But um, we're gradually sort of, you know, d- d- covering the areas of the map that we haven't managed to hit yet. Now, I know um, Ruan doesn't actually live in Japan, but I was saying to Japan and, and Asia, that was one of those places that uh, we wanted to, to get a hold of and get a story from. And now we've got that, right? So I'm still looking for people in South America and Africa to get in touch. And I'd be delighted to speak to you as well down in Australia, right? Because some of you who would have discovered this podcast through the various Irish in Brisbane, Irish in Melbourne, Irish in Sydney pages, right? I see I see certain things coming up all the time, right? Some of them are around accommodation and the others around this 88 days of, of regional work or seasonal work. I don't know what that's called at all, right? So what I'd love to do is do an old podcast with somebody who's down there in Australia getting settled in and getting their visa sorted out and getting their apartment sorted out. So if you've been down there for, you know, one week, two weeks, three weeks, six months, a year kind of thing, if you're just settling into life down there, come on the podcast and have a chat and we'll put it out there and it might help people back home in Ireland who are sort of considering making the same move that you made, uh, it might help them to, to make that decision in a little bit of a more informed fashion, if you will. So uh, they'll get to listen to your experiences and what you did and what you had to do to get down there and what you need if you're working in a trade, if you want to be an electrician or a plumber or working on a building site or in a school or a lawyer or whatever. So if you have that kind of experience, drop me an old message on Instagram, right? At Philip Ablana on Instagram. Or if you happen to know somebody, you should reach out to them and say, look, this fellow makes a podcast for the Global Irish community every week. He'd love to talk to somebody like you. And uh, send them on over. I'll send them an old Zoom invite and we'll have a chat and we'll put it out on another episode of the Global Gale podcast. That is it for this week then. Patreon.com forward slash Arrowman in Stockholm. Five a month. Keep the lights on, boys and girls. She wouldn't even get you a beer or a cup of coffee in most uh, so-called civilised European countries at this stage. But I could very well do it the more people who pay for it the more ambitious things we can do with the podcast and the more i can get out and meet you where you are in the meantime until next time look after yourselves look after one another and i'll speak to you again very soon on the global gale podcast (laughs) 